0: If you could go back in time to just one moment in history, just to live through one moment for one day, I wonder what you would choose. Maybe it's a moment of sporting glory to, to sit in Wembley Stadium as England win the World Cup in 1966. Or a moment of political significance, to stand with the crowd maybe at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington as Martin Luther King declared, I have a dream, and to hope with him that one day that dream will be realised. So many moments to choose from. For me though, I think it would be a cultural moment. If I could go to any point in history to live through a moment firsthand, I would go to the 7th of May, 1824, to a theater in Vienna. There, that day, Beethoven premiered his Ninth Symphony. Until then, all of the major composers had written these great symphonies, but with his Ninth, Beethoven did something extraordinary. It builds through the best part of an hour with some wonderful music and then a few minutes into the final movement a singer bursts into song. And then a whole chorus joins in. It's like they can't contain themselves. They sing the ode to joy. It has become an anthem, a favourite bit of music for many people. I would love to live through the drama of hearing for the first time. A symphony is fantastic in its own right, but it wells up and overflows into a song in, in a new and an unforgettable way. Incidentally, Beethoven was almost deaf by that point, so much so at the end of this performance, uh, he was several beats out of time with the orchestra that he was meant to be conducting, and someone had to come up and turn him around to show him that the audience was already on their feet applauding. I'd quite like to have seen all of that. Uh, but look, why? Why all this talk about Beethoven? Why the Ode to Joy? Well, you'll have noticed our psalm today, Psalm 96. It's, it's that kind of a psalm. It's that kind of moment, really. If, if anything, it's a more significant moment. Here is a sudden and a dramatic and a new bursting into song. It's an ode to joy and it changes everything. In its context, actually, Psalm 96 is almost word for word copied from 1 Chronicles chapter 16. There, it forms part of the song of praise and worship to God that God's people sing when the Ark of the Covenant is brought into Jerusalem under the reign of King David. Now that's symbolic as God's chosen king ruling over his people in his place and the Ark of the Covenant comes in and represents God's presence among them there. It's a moment from history that those people wanted to relive. But as I hope we'll see as we look at it together this lunchtime, the scale and the scope of what this psalm is about is far greater still than one nation in one place at one time. This is a new song and a song for all the earth. So let's look at it uh, together. Uh, two points for us this lunchtime. Here's here's the first. The Lord is worthy of our worship. The Lord is worthy of our worship. Psalm 96 verse 1, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous deeds among all people. As we've seen in some of these other psalms, these songs from the 90s, this one begins with a great call to worship and to praise God. The big claim of the psalm is that he is worthy of worship. He's worthy of worship because of who he is. Uh, We learn, for instance, in verse 5 that he is the creator. Uh, This is a God who made the heavens, and we'd add the earth. Uh, Verse 10, because this unchanging God made the world, the world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. And then heaven is to rejoice, the earth is to be glad, the sea is to resound, the fields are to be jubilant, the trees are to sing. In fact, all of creation and all the things that fill it are called calling to praise and worship of this, the living God. Because he made the world its right and proper to give him all the glory for all that is in it. If we knew nothing else about God beyond the very first line of the Bible we'd still have every reason to give him praise and worship. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That covers most of the ground. That alone is enough. Uh, But notice also that because God is a creator of all things, he is in authority over all things. His creation is filled with things that he has filled it with. The world is firmly established because he has ruled over it and kept it that way. Because he made the world, he is qualified to determine what is good for the world. We don't need to look elsewhere for wisdom or for help. We need only look to the one who made us and who calls us under his care. So we're to praise God for who he is. Also we're to praise him for what he does. He's the Savior, verse 2. He's the doer of marvelous deeds, verse 3. He's the righteous judge, verse 13. And if you think that God coming in judgment doesn't sound like cause for celebration, consider the breadth of what this justice means. Is God coming to put right what is wrong with the world? God coming to establish righteousness and justice in a world that knows evil and injustice? In short, the message of the psalm is that God is in charge and that this is good news because God is good. And because this good God is in charge, the only right response is one of irrepressible praise and worship. Sing to the Lord a new song. The psalmist begins. It's a common refrain in the Bible, six times in the Psalms, once in Isaiah, twice in the book of Revelation. And I'm sure that it is a much needed encouragement to our musicians and to our songwriters to keep us creative in our sung worship. It's great to have some freshness there. But this call to sing a new song I think it's much more than an instruction to the professional musicians uh, who help us to sing in our services. It's a summons to the whole of creation to recognize God for who he is and to respond rightly to him. This is the God whose mercies are new every morning in Lamentations 3. There's always cause to sing a new song of praise to him. Uh, Anna's verses 1 to 3 show us uh, this call to sing, sing, sing. It's focused on his work of salvation and the wonderful deeds he's done on our behalf. That's why there's a new song sung in the new creation. The apostle John saw a vision of the elders gathered around the throne in heaven and, and saw a lamb there looking as if it had been slain. And saw the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus and his blood shed on our behalf and heard a new song being sung. And it went like this, Revelation 5. They sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is the new song. It's a song of salvation. It is a song that celebrates the work of God in rescuing his people from their sin and of making his home among them. An international, a multicultural and utterly diverse but wonderfully united body of believers. United around the person of Christ and the salvation that God has won for us in him. So it's a new song for us day by day. But it's also a new song for all who come to know the saving work of the Lord. Originally, this psalm was sung as the Ark of the Covenant came into Jerusalem under King David. But even there, even in the later temple, the nations were excluded and the barrier was put up between sinful people and a holy God this psalm anticipates the great story of salvation, the greater song to sing as God's greater king, as his son, as his Messiah, establishes his right rule in his new creation. Sin paid for as he saves us and him dwelling among us in eternity. It's a new song for each person who comes to know it for themselves as Christopher Ashe puts it eloquently, he says it's a song that is new, not so much because it's content, as by reason of its growing band of newly recruited singers, its growing choir. So it leaves us asking, will we join the chorus? Will we make this new song our song, proclaiming his salvation day after day? The Lord is worthy of our worship. Which leads us to our second and our final point. The Lord alone is worthy of our worship. The Lord alone is worthy of our worship. Uh, we have a terrible habit, don't we, of looking for heroes wherever we can find them. Uh, here's a cover from Time magazine, searching from a, a hero in the world of rock music, Uh, It asks, can Bono save the world? Or again, Time Magazine searching for a hero from national governments and ideologies. Can China save the world? I was encouraged to see that even Time Magazine has some limits on their ambitions, though. This cover simply says, why Germany can't save the world? (laughs) Don't know what they've got against the Germans. I didn't want to ask. Uh, My point is that we look for heroes. We look for help from pseudo-saviors. But all of those eventually will let us down. And we could learn something from this psalm. Because while it holds up the living God as the right object of our worship, it also shows, as a consequence, that the living God is the only right object of our worship. Verse 4 says... For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. We have a habit in our fallen and sinful nature of worshipping created things rather than the creator. We put our hope and our trust in things like possessions or power or politics or love or lust or whatever else it might be that captivates our hearts and steers us away from God. But none of those things make for good objects of worship. They can't save us, they could distract us. In Psalm 115 the psalmist gives this same warning in some really powerful poetry. Uh, Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. You see, the idols that we turn to and we trust in are created things ultimately lacking any power to do us any good, not worth our attention. But then comes the punchline. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. In a catchphrase, we become what we worship. And that's why it's so important that we learn and we keep learning this new song of salvation in the gospel of grace. The more we rehearse and rejoice in this song, the more we are drawn to the Saviour about whom we're singing. As the Apostle Paul urges the Corinthian church, uh, we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. As we gaze on him, we delight in him, and we become more like him. Where does this leave us, then? Well, in the first instance, I hope that it will make us more worshipful people. But notice, as a final thought, how the worship of God here is for the benefit of the nations. All of these commands to sing, to sing, to sing, to declare, to ascribe, to say, they're all about making this song of salvation known among those who don't know it. We are sent into the world in the knowledge and love of God and of his Messiah. We go on mission as worshipping people. As we go making disciples, we're not merely holding out truths about God and the gospel and inviting people to assent to them intellectually. We're going as people in awe of Jesus, in worship of him, longing for others to recognize him for who he is, and so to bow the knee in worship as we do. We commend Christ because he is delightful Many of you will know, I'm sure, the Greek myth about Jason and the Argonauts. Jason was a long way from home travelling back in a boat with his sailors and they had to pass by the sirens. The sirens were these group who would sit on the rocks and sing sweet songs which would tempt the sailors to come towards them and they would crash their ships on the rocks and get shipwrecked. And Jason's solution to this problem was to have his men sing a sweeter song above the song that the sirens were singing. It was a nicer tune that they were singing in their boat and they weren't led astray. And I wonder if that's something of the calling here as we hear this psalm and this call to sing a new song among the nations, to sing a sweeter song than what the world hears. Marcus Honeyset is a preacher and a teacher. He spends his time encouraging the healthy spiritual formation of Christian leaders. Uh, he has a habit of looking people in the eye, and he does it quite intensely. He asks them, how is your worship life? He says on this, uh, we cannot say to the nations, come and be glad in the Lord when we're not glad ourselves. We can't say, praise him, you peoples, unless we are people who praise him. So how's your heart and your worship life? It's a good question to ask ourselves and maybe a good place for us to draw to a close this lunchtime. There's a verse from the prophets that I love, Habakkuk 2.14. It points to the future in the light of these truths from this psalm here. It says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Should we use this new song here to start preparing for that day? How's your worship life? Because rehearsing and rejoicing in this new song of salvation, this ode to joy, well, it will draw us to Christ. It will make us more like him and it will spur us into speaking of him and declaring his glory among the nations. Amen.